This morning, we're going to be in Psalms 86, and Psalms 86 is an individual's prayer for help against his enemies that seek to destroy him. And as we jump into Psalms 86 this morning, what I want you to kind of understand where I'm coming from today is I've been trying to, to pay attention over the past several weeks to what's been going on in our country. Instead of pointing a finger and assigning blame, I've been trying to listen and learn and understand what is causing some of the reaction. Why the, the riots? Why uh, the, the burning? Why the anger? Why the frustration? And instead of me just preaching Psalm 86 from my perspective, what I really am hoping to do today is preach it from a perspective outside of my own comfort zone. Uh, I'm trying to bring light to a subject that I think is, is really difficult for many of us to properly understand, and I think it's very challenging because we walk into race racial reconciliation and racial relations with our own perspective. For me, what that means is I grew up, and in kindergarten, I was seated next to a kid named Stan Hurd. I never really thought anything about Stan. We were friends. I remember it wasn't until maybe third or fourth grade, whenever I stayed the night at his house, that I realized that he and his family were different from me. Whenever I was walking through their hallways and I saw all the photos on the wall, I noticed that all of his family looked different than all of my family because Stan was black and I just never put two and two together. I remember like going through college and not really thinking that much about it. My best friend was black. Uh, he is still one of my best friends in the world. And to me, since, you know, Stan was black and I never thought anything of it and James was my best man outside of my brother. I was the best man in, in his wedding. Like, it was no big deal. And so for me, like, there's not a whole lot of understanding, but that doesn't mean that the world understands it. It also doesn't mean that races are all good. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to get an understanding of where some of the frustration and anger is coming from, and of all places, where I want to start is the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, we are a Southern Baptist church, and with that, our Southern Baptist Convention has addressed racial reconciliation. And so, on the screen behind me, I'm going to read to you what your Southern Baptist Convention has done. And I do this telling you that I'm just hoping I don't get it wrong. Like, I don't want to get this conversation wrong. I don't want to look ignorant or stupid or be offensive. What I want to do is, is help. And so the second sermon might be a little bit different from the first sermon. And I hope that we can have an open mind to, to this topic because I think there's a lot to be learned. And I think pointing fingers and maybe finding a black person who agrees with your white opinion isn't always the best thing to do because they're a perspective in a community of perspectives. So let me just read a resolution on racial reconciliation that was written on the 150th anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is what it says, word for word, and you can see on the screen behind me or 
up there if you want it. It says, whereas since its founding in 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention has been an effective instrument of God in missions, evangelism, and social ministry, and whereas the scripture teach us that Eve is the mother of all living, Genesis 3.20, and that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him, and that God made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and whereas our relationship to African Americans has been hindered from the beginning by the role that slavery played in the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention, and whereas many of our Southern Baptist forebears defended the right to own slaves and either participated in, supported, or acquiesced in the particular inhumane nature of American slavery, and whereas in, in later years Southern Baptists failed in many cases to support and in some cases opposed legitimate initiatives to secure civil rights for African Americans and whereas racism has led to discrimination, oppression, injustice, and violence both in civil wars and throughout the history of our nation and whereas racism has divided the body of Christ and Southern Baptist in particular and separated us from our African-American brothers and sisters, and whereas many of our congregations have I'm sorry, intentionally or unintentionally excluded African-Americans from worship, membership, and leadership, and whereas racism profound, profoundly distorts our understanding of Christian morality, leading some Southern Baptists to believe that racial prejudice and discrimination are compatible with the gospel, and therefore be it resolved that the messengers to the sequential, I'm sorry, sesquicentennial meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention assembled in Atlanta, Georgia, June 20th through 22nd, 1995, unwaveringly denounced racism in all its forms as deplorable sins. I, I want to make sure you understand that. Our Southern Baptist Convention unwaveringly, unwaveringly denounces racism in all its forms as a deplorable sin. Keep that word deplorable in mind. Be it further resolved that we affirm the Bible's teaching that every human life is sacred and of its equal immeasurable worth made in God's image regardless of race or ethnicity and that with respect to salvation through Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave or free. There is neither male nor female for we are all in one in Christ, and for, be it further resolved that we lament the repudiated and repudiate historic acts of evil such as slavery from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest, and we recognize that racism, which yet plagues our culture today, is inextricably tied to the past, and be it further resolved that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating individual and systematic racism in our lifetime, and we generally repent of racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously, and be it further resolved that we ask for forgiveness from our African-American brothers and sisters, acknowledging that our own healing is at stake, and be it further resolved that we hereby commit ourselves to eradicate racism in all of its form from Southern Baptist life and ministry, 
And be it further resolved that we commit ourselves to be doers of the words by pursuing racial reconciliation in all our relationships, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the end that our light should shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven, and be it finally resolved that we pledge our commitment to the great commission task of making disciples of all people, confessing that in, in church God is calling together one people from every tribe and nation and proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the only certain and sufficient ground upon which redeemed persons will stand together in restored family union as joint heirs with Christ. Now here's what I want you to understand. A lot of times when we get in racial reconciliation stuff, whenever we get into this, there's the idea or the term that we're pandering to a certain thing or that we have been race baited. I want you to understand, this is from 1995. 25 years ago, there was an issue, a resolution brought forth in the Southern Baptist Convention on our 150th anniversary that says we have gotten it wrong. We don't want to get it wrong any longer, and we repent of the clear sin on which we have had. I want you to understand, just because you and I don't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we have black friends or Hispanic friends or any friends of any color does not mean that everything is fine today in our society. There are two clear examples that I want to share from my own life that have kind of brought this forth in a way that helped me understand. How many of y'all have ever had the talk with your children? The talk for a white person goes something like this. Son, daughter, I need to tell you about the birds and the bees. It's uncomfortable. Are you with me? Like we look at our children and we're like, ah, gotta have the sex talk. I was in a, a conversation, right, where a group of pastors are trying to get together and there's different races that are meeting and a black pastor said, that's not what the talk means in our culture. And all the white people in the room are like, what are we talking about? Like, you yeah, have a better way of doing this? Tell me more. And he goes, no, no, no. The talk for us is whenever we talk about how you have to deal with police. The talk with us is what you have to do whenever you get pulled over. The talk with us is what you have to do if a white person accuses you of being somewhere you shouldn't be. How you say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. How you tone down your rhetoric. How you don't get angry, how you take it. And I remember thinking, what kind of talk is that? How is that a thing? But it wasn't just one black pastor who said that. It was pretty much everybody in the room. Now, I'm just going to tell you, it was shocking to me. But the talk in the African-American culture is a whole lot different than the talk in the white culture. There's a second thing that really brought things to life. Now, many of y'all don't know this, but I was a world-class lifeguard. How many of y'all knew that? Any of y'all know that? I was good. I was a deep water lifeguard at Hurricane Harbor. It used to be wet and wild whenever I was there. I remember whenever I was there, I was just starting out, and you go through all the deep water training on how to save people. And there was a group that had come in from inner city Dallas, and they were all black. And I had my boss come up to me, who was actually an African-American uh, manager there. He was my, my lead on my shift, and he said, you got to be on your, your eyes. These kids can't swim, and they're going to go down the deep water slides. I was like, how do you know they can't swim? They said, they're from the inner city. They don't ever swim. They're just here to have fun. You better be ready. And it was one after another. I was maybe the busiest that day than I ever was. I, somebody would go down the slide. I'd jump in, save them, and that'd be the last time they went down the slide. 
Now you might think, what does that have to do with systematic racism? What does that have to do with racism in general? There was, by their color of skin, an awareness raised within the lifeguards that they didn't know how to swim, that we were going to have to save them because they were not privy to the same kind of swimming pool and the same kind of swimming instructions that we had. Now, is that racism? I'm not really sure. Did they lack the same privileges that most of the swimmers did at Hurricane Harbor? They absolutely did. They weren't trained. And to me, whenever I was preparing this, I didn't start off thinking about lifeguarding days. I started thinking about the nature of Psalms 86. The psalmist writing this thing to where he's basically saying, God, help me because I don't have the answers here. God, help me. I need your wisdom and your insight. And the first thing I thought of was my lifeguarding days when somebody was in the water and they're flailing their hands up saying, help me, I'm drowning here. And it wasn't until last night, whenever I thought about that, that, that reality, how there were certain people just because of their color and their socioeconomic standard that I just had to be more alert. I don't think it was racist on my part or the lifeguard who told me to do it. It just speaks to an underlying current that I think we need to be aware of. There's one other reason we have to get this right. We have to get it right because our black brothers and sisters in Christ tell us it's an issue and that should be enough. So what I want to do is I want to jump into Psalms 86 and I want to, to the best of my ability, address what the text says in hopes that we can take and apply God's word to a situation that a lot of times it's just easy for us to get wrong. Psalms 86, 1 through 7 is a petition to God for his help. This is a person drowning with their arms up saying, God, please help me in this situation. This is what it says. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for, you, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who come upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for your grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. When you look at this, there is a compare and contrast that is really clear and really evident. There's an understanding of who God is and an understanding of who men are, right? Who mankind is. God is good. He is described as forgiving. He is abounding in love. God is available to all. Man is referred to as poor. Man is needy. Man cries out. Man is troubled. But God is there. He is kind. He is ready to forgive. He is ready to love. He is ready to accept. Like the nature and the character of God is one who says, Come to me, who, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I will hear you. I will answer your cry. I will be there for you. And what that does is it shows us that if we're going to be like God, we need to carry on his kindness and his forgiveness and his love and his comfort that he offers to us. And the reason that racism needs to be confronted is that racism does the exact opposite of all this. Racism says, because you don't look at me, I'm not going to allow you in my presence. Because you look different from me. You might talk different. You might have a different background than me. I'm going to lay it out there. Merriam-Webster 
defines racism in this. A belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and the racial difference produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Racism in every form and fashion is a sin. There was a sign that somebody held up that says racism is a pandemic in a time of pandemic pandemics. Racism, we must understand at the very core and nature of it, is an attack on God himself. The scripture makes it very, very clear that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. What racism does is it denies that all men are made in God's image. What it does whenever we say, because you look differently, you're less than me, it just denies the fact that we're all created by God. We're on an equal playing field with God Almighty. His blood covers everyone just the same. And not only is it an attack on God himself, racism is an attack on the gospel itself. Whenever you think about this, racism is an attack on the inclusive nature of God. That he loves all, that he gave himself for all. That God died for the sins of the world, that Jesus, when he came and he bled and he died, he died for everyone. It eliminates our mission field, right? When we think about racism, it's just such a crazy thing that we're in 2020 and we have to say racism is a sin. I mean, how stupid is that? Why is this still a thing? But even though it may not be for us, people of color feel it, and so we have to be sensitive to it. Amen? If y'all like, man, that's more of like, oh me, oh my, that's just terrible, right? Look at verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 say, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. He's speaking to the superiority of God himself. Verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. You know, I see this, and this is where hope comes from for me. If our God can carve out the valleys, if our God can craft mountains, if our God can overcome sin, death, and the grave, what's a little sin problem to a God like ours? Like, if God can figure out how to make dead men alive, why can God not enlighten our minds and our hearts to what's going on around us? If God can make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, why can't God give us a heart of understanding? Like, what, what is this problem to a God like ours? Because our Lord is incomparable. There's no comparison to Him. There's no one who matches up to Him. There's no one who can be elevated to a God like ours. Our God is faithful and true. And the difference between our God and other gods, we have stories of hope and redemption, of freedom that's found in Christ. The God who has delivered us from the bondage of the slavery of sin. We have testimonies of changed lives because of a God like ours. We have stories of restore, restored marriages. 
and provision where there was none. We have this idea of a God who has been completely unmatched in history. What the psalmist is declaring in Psalms 86 is specifically the victories that God had given him in his lifetime. He said, God, I came before you and in your name I conquered nations. I toppled kingdoms because of what you did through me. Lord, I stand above all the kings of the earth. He was speaking towards the victories that God had given him, that his God was unmatched, that his God was beyond comparison. And can I tell you the God that King David was praising is the same God that you and I praise today? The same God that delivered us from the bondage of sin and slavery to sin is the same God that can deliver us from narrow-minded misunderstanding. The reason that I feel like this has to be addressed is not that racial relations are, are on the line, although I think they are. It's because the most important thing we can do in our life is spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we feel like people are unworthy of it, we don't understand our God at all. We've got to get it right. We've got to learn and guard and protect the gospel which God has entrusted to us. Look at verses 11 through 17. A promise to serve and follow God. This, this is just a humility that the psalmist has that, that we need to grasp. Says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. If you struggle with racism, like I, I get it. Most of y'all in this room right now grew up in different times than me. Y'all know what it was like to, to go through integration, getting rid of segregation, right? Some of y'all lived it. And I understand that some of y'all might have had conflict with a person of a different race than you. And because of your experience, you might categorize everybody in light of one situation. And you may never think how unfair it is that maybe a past act that you had with somebody on a, on a different color or different skin is a, a terrible thing to do. But think about it in this light. Not every cop is bad, and I think most people would say that, right? And we think it's really unfair when a community or a race or a culture says, well, all cops are bad because there's a few bad apples in the mix. But when we categorize everybody based on one or two experiences, it's sin for everyone who does that. He says, teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in it. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's just a, a plea. Help me to see people the way you do. Help me to understand people the way you do. Help me to just live in your, in your wisdom. Verse 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God. With my whole heart, and I will glorify your name. For great is your steadfast love towards me. Like how many of us, when we're approaching a difficult topic, say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to do what you say because of your steadfast love towards me. You know what the psalmist understood? His own sin, the weight of his own sin, the burden of his own sin. And because of that, it's like, Lord, because you love me, I will love you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. goes on in verse 14 and says, Oh God, insolent men has risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Verse 16 says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your servant your strength and save your son from your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may, may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. What I love about the psalmist is that he dedicates himself to God. He says, with my whole heart. And what we see is that we are to dedicate ourselves to God with undivided loyalty. That means preconceived notions, preconceived judgments need to go by the wayside and we just need to say, God, I will love like you love. I will be patient like you are patient. I will give of myself in the same example that you gave of yourself. And we are to live in such a way that others see and know that God is in us. I understand this, that there are a myriad of opinions. There is no way on the face of the earth that I would ever condone looting. I would ever condone riots or any of that kind of behavior. And there's no way on earth I would ever condone racism or hatred towards a people group for whatever reason. We are to love the way that God loved us. We are to give of ourselves in the same way that God gave of himself. And so the thought is, how do we help with godliness? How do we be part of the solution instead of part of the problem? Like, how do we portray God in brokenness? If you're like me, I'm sure you have read and listened and tried to understand. And so I'm going to give you three things that I have found to be the most helpful. I didn't come up with any of them. They're just three things that I've been trying to do over the past month or so. Number one, I want to be a confessor in a culture of blame. Instead of telling people it's been however many years since all this stuff went on, I want to accept my role that what I have done or what my family members have done or whatever, that we were wrong. I don't need to give an excuse and I don't need to tell people it's been decades since they, they, they went through any hardship. I want to be a confessor in a culture of blame. I love what the Southern Baptist Convention did 25 years ago because instead of saying get over it, they said we were wrong. We want to excuse certain behavior. We want to justify certain images. It is wrong. It is wrong to defend the wrong side of history, period. One of the greatest signs of solidarity that we've seen in some of these peaceful protests is when the men and women are walking or they're taking a knee and you see a picture of a police officers saying, we are right there with you. We understand what has been going on has been wrong. Being a confessor in a time of blame. Here's the second thing we can do. We need to foster conversation in a culture of shouting. When people want to yell and assign blame and tell people that they're wrong and this and that, what I've found to be the most helpful is calling up my friends of color and just saying, help me understand what you're feeling. I think if we can just call and say, help me understand what I don't understand, help me understand what you're feeling and all this because I don't get it, what I've found is that has been the most appreciated question I can ask. Instead of assuming, ask. Instead of assuming the worst, say, I just, man, I, 
I want to get it. I don't. When everybody's shouting, have a conversation. You know, the most ironic thing is whenever you got these white trust fund babies who are like shouting at the police like they understand. Somehow, I just don't think that a white teenage girl is going to properly represent the racial divide that we've seen in our country. We don't need more shouting. We need more talking. And so what we're going to do, what we're participating in with churches in the city of Rowlett to try and learn and get it better is a racial conversation, a racial racial reconciliation conversation. It's going to be July 19th from 6 to 8 p.m. If you're interested in being a part of this, please email office at FPC Rowlett and we will uh, try and get you there. It's limited seating. We only have a limited number of people because we're trying to get churches from all in. But if you're interested, please let me know. The third thing that I think that we need to do and that we need to keep focus on is we need to, cl- to declare the gospel in a culture of rage. Here's why I don't like getting off on side topics and social justice and social issues. If we're not careful, they become a distraction to our mission. And I'm not saying that things like this are not important because it's very, very important. But what I'm saying is I'm not here to be a social justice warrior. I am here to be a warrior of the gospel. A proclaimer of the good news that Jesus saves because at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to cure the wickedness in hearts is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is it. The gospel will bring healing. The gospel will bring people together. And I don't know about you, but for me, I want to live for the gospel. There was slavery in the time of Jesus, and he addressed the good news. There was a lot of injustice going on, and Jesus was kind and compassionate, but his focus was on the mission that Jesus gave him. Now, if I see injustice, I will speak to injustice. But whenever I see the problems and the hatred and the racism, at the end of the day, what I see more than anything else is that we have a serious sin problem in our world. And the only solution for it is Christ who died for our sins. The one who bled and died so that you and I could live. Make the gospel Be the central theme of your life. Live for the good news that Jesus brings healing to heartache and that problems in this world will always exist, but there is a hereafter coming, a world free from sin and hatred and wickedness. Live for the gospel.